0: As a reminder uh, about the Psalms, uh, Kendall Easley writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So he gives us that sentence as an overarching theme of the entire Psalms. But you and I know, uh, entire book of Psalms, uh, but you and I understand, don't we, that uh, the Psalms are in actuality hymns. They were used in Hebrew worship. And John Piper writes concerning that, the psalms are songs, they are poems, they are written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. And this psalm is poetic in that David used a Hebrew uh, element of poetry called the acrostic where he starts each section with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He starts with the first letter, Aleph, and then the next uh, stanza starts with Beit, and the next stanza with Gimel, and he works his way through the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a poetic device to organize his thoughts, and that's what we have here in chapter 37. You can't see it in your English translations. If you were able to see this in the Hebrew, you'd see how it is laid out and is beautiful, and it is thoughtful. And we know uh, one thing about this psalm. We know that David wrote it later in his life. Because look in verse 25 with me. David writes, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. So David gives us some perspective on when he wrote this. He wrote this in his Later years he would have been in the owls ministry at his church, just to give you uh, how, how that would look and so so he 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 wrote this later on in life, and he wrote it in a poetic way because he was thinking carefully about some issues that are perplexing. so let me just kind of give you the the big picture concerning this psalm, and this is in your notes. This psalm is an admonition to live with an eternal perspective. This psalm is an admonition to live with an eternal perspective. It's so easy in life to get caught up with the here and now, yeah. the, the, the immediate, and lose sight of... I don't know why I did that. To lose sight of the eternal perspective that we all ought to have. And And here's the deal. And this is what David's dealing with in this psalm. When we lose sight of eternity we can tend to anger. Because look what it says there in verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. And then in verse 7, he says, in the middle of that verse, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Now, notice that phrase, fret not. It's an interesting word. It's the Hebrew word kara, And it means to burn or to be kindled. So it's a a word that was used to speak of someone's anger. You know, when you're you're angry, you're burning on the inside. You you feel it kindling on the inside. And so what David is actually saying there in verse 1 and in verse 7, other places, is this. Don't get angry when you see evildoers prospering. That's what's happening here in this psalm. In fact, what David is reflecting on is this. Many times in this fallen world, nice guys, godly guys, righteous guys, honest guys, guys with integrity, finish last. And those who are not righteous and not godly and not and not people of integrity, they seem to be thriving and doing great. So how in the world are we to process that reality when we see this lived out in a fallen world. David is basically saying don't get worked up when you see nice guys finishing last. Now, how do we fret when we see things that just don't make sense from our Christian perspective? Well, first of all, our anger can be directed at others. We can get mad at the situation, we can get mad at people that we think don't deserve to thrive, but they're thriving. We can feel angry at them. You know, here I am serving Jesus, fearing God, and I'm struggling to pay the light bill. And here's my neighbor, and they don't love the Lord. They don't care about the Lord. They don't care about the church. And they're just doing, they just got a new boat. I mean, look at that. What's going on here, right? And and we can feel ourselves angry at others and angry at the situation. Sometimes our anger can even be directed towards God. We might not come out and say that, but in our mind, we're thinking that's not fair. I don't like the way that's happening, God. And, and we can fret and and anger can be kindled in our heart. So what's the opposite of anger when you see something perplexing? What's the opposite of fretting over something that you don't like, that, that just doesn't make sense? Well, David gives us the opposite in the psalm. In fact, the, the psalm is, here's the opposite way to approach that kind of situation. David encourages the reader to do three things, all right? Three things when when life doesn't make sense, when nice guys finish last, when unrighteous people seem to be doing great. There are three things the reader needs to do. Number one, look ahead. Look ahead. Look what he says there in verse 2. After he says, "Fret not yourself because of evil doers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Now, fast forward down to verse ten in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there when evaluating people's lives, don't focus on this quickly fading life, focus on eternity. that's what he's saying. I mean, we look at someone that seems to be thriving even though they are ungodly, and we see the godly person struggling, maybe even suffering, and we think that that doesn't make sense, that's not fair, but you're only thinking about this short little life that the Bible calls a vapor. It's It's here today, it's gone the next. Instead, Christians ought to think about life from the perspective of eternity. And that's why David is drawing a very clear contrast between the wicked and the righteous. So there in verse 10, in a little while, the wicked will be no more. Look in verse 35. In verse 35, he says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, thriving, growing. But look at the next verse, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. I sought him, but he could not be found. His life looked really good in in the day-in-day the, the, the day realities of living on this earth, but guess what? He died and had to face eternity. So he talks about the wicked. But look at the righteous by way of contrast. Look at what it says in verse 18. Speaking there of the righteous, it says in verse 17, the Lord upholds the righteous. Then in verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain how long? Forever. There's an eternal reward for those that who are righteous. And then look down in verse 37. Mark the blameless, behold the upright, for there is a future, there is a future implication, a good future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord." And so here's what David is saying. Don't evaluate someone's success based upon how it looks on this earth. That's not a good indicator if someone is spiritually successful. Evaluate, evaluate them based upon their eternal destiny. Because I promise you this, You would rather struggle to pay the light bill and go to heaven than you would buy a new boat and go to hell. When you get to eternity, all that will become clear. And those who do not know Jesus and spend eternity separated from God will look back over their short little life and think, Why did I waste my life oppressing people, taking advantage of people, living without integrity? acquiring things? Why did I spend my life on things that do not matter from an eternal perspective? And the person who was righteous and struggled will get to heaven and say, it was worth it. It was worth it to follow Jesus. It was worth it to serve God. It was worth it to uh, do the right thing. I'm not sure why my mic is doing that. Um, and so uh, we need to to look ahead. James Montgomery Boyce says this, it is hard for most of us to take the long view because we are consumed by the present. Let me read that again. It is hard for most of us to take the long view because we are consumed by the present. But we need to do it if we're good or if we're to grow in grace and begin to understand something of what God is doing in this world. Dale Ralph Davis says it like this. Let what you know about the future destiny of the wicked control your disposition toward the difficulties, pressures, and conflicts of the present. In other words, if someone is wicked, but they're headed for eternity in hell, that's not something to envy, is it? If they look successful, but their eternity is separation from God, that's not something to envy, that's something to pity. That that their greatest joys are here in this life, and they will forever be separated from God. We should not envy that. We should pity that. So look ahead. Think about people's lives, not just in the here and now, but think about them from an eternal perspective. In fact, hold your place, but look over in Proverbs 24 with me very quickly. Right after Psalms, book of Proverbs, Proverbs 24, verse 19. Solomon says it very succinctly here, I think barring the words of his father. He says in Proverbs 24, 19, Fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of the wicked, for the evil man has no future. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Pretty clear, right? Don't envy those who are headed for eternal destruction. That's not something to envy. So when you're perplexed, life doesn't make sense. Nice guys finish last. Ungodly guys are living it up. Don't think about the here and now. Think about their future. Number two, not only should we look ahead, we should look up. We should look up. How do we keep our focus on God to keep this perspective? Well, back in Psalm 37, the, thirty, uh, yeah, thirty-seven. There are four imperatives, four commands given here that speak of the disposition of the godly, the the disposition we ought to have. The first imperative is to trust, to trust. Look what it says in verse three. Instead of worrying about who's getting ahead, who's who's winning, who's losing. Instead of worrying about all that. Trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Trust. That means we should be confident in the Lord. We should rest in Him, knowing that it's all in His hands. Fast forward to verse 25 of this psalm where David writes, I've been young, now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. In other words, when it's all said and done, God will take care of his people. And then look what it says in verse 28. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. So when it seems like the the righteous, the godly are struggling in this life, just trust God. Just trust that He will take care of you. He will come through and He will make a way. So, how do we keep our focus on God? First of all, we trust. Be confident in the Lord. Second of all, delight. Delight. Look what it says in verse 4. Not only should we trust in the Lord and do good, we should delight in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. You may be a a righteous person, and life doesn't make much sense. And maybe you're struggling, struggling financially, struggling with health, struggling through some difficulty or circumstance. And here's what David is saying. If you don't have all that the world has to offer, but you have the Lord, you have enough. You have him, a relationship with him. And he is greater than anything that this world promises or offers. So so listen, if you don't have the things the, the unrighteous have, just find your delight in the Lord. Just rejoice in the fact that you have a relationship with God. You get him as a great gift. Delight yourself in the Lord. Find your joy in the Lord. Find your happiness in the Lord. To delight, this is in your notes, is to find our pleasure and contentment in the Lord. That's what that means. You're not looking for pleasure and contentment in all the wrong places. You know that ultimately, pleasure and contentment come from a relationship with God. Delight yourself in the Lord. Now, parenthetically, I don't have a lot of time to go here, but notice when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the, the desires of your heart. Now, I think it... It um I think it is not uh I think it speaks against the context of the psalm to say that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you whatever you want. That doesn't make sense in, in terms of the rest of the psalm. I think what he means here when he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you, give you the desires of your heart, it means he will give you godly, God honoring desires. He will, in fact, begin to direct you through your desires. So you, instead of wanting the wrong thing, you will want the right thing. Instead of chasing after what the ungodly are chasing after, you'll chase after righteous things, godly things, eternal things. And so delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. This verse is important to me because I believe that's that's partly the way that God called me into the ministry, called me to preach. And there's something here about the will of God. And again, this is... We could do six weeks on the will of God, uh, but in my own life, when the Lord got my attention, He took me through a series uh, in a season of brokenness to get my attention. So uh, I put my focus on Him and started seeking Him first. The verse He really used in my life was Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all the other things you worry about, food, shelter, clothing, will be added unto you. In other words, if you'll seek him first, you'll take care of the rest of the details of your life. And God used that verse in my life to show me I was not seeking him first. So I went back to my college dorm room, opened my Bible to Matthew 6.33. For the first time in a long time, I mean months, years perhaps, I got on my knees before the Lord, Read Matthew six thirty three and said, "From this point on, I'm going to put you first. You are first place in my life. You are Lord of my life." Now, after that, almost immediately—I don't know the exact timeline—but days, weeks after that moment, I began to have these these unusual desires that came out of nowhere. Like I began to think things like this: "I wonder what it'd be like to." teach the Bible to a group of people three times a week. I wonder what that'd be like. I never thought, I had that thought before. I began to think things like this. I wonder what seminary is all about. Heard about it, but I, well, hmm. So I began to ask my pastor. We began to dialogue. And, and before I knew it, I was a, a business major, had all these goals. And, 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 and before I knew it, my desires had completely changed where all I could think about was preaching the gospel in a as a pastor in a local church. It came out of nowhere. But I think it was Psalm 37:4 in place uh, in play when I when I delighted in the Lord and put him first in my life, he began to direct me through my desires. That makes sense. So let me say it like this. If Jesus is first in your life, you can trust that he May direct you through your desires, give you a passion for something, or a, a, a or a thought about something that you weren't previously passionate about or thinking about. He can direct you through your desires, but let me say this: the heart is tricky. Jeremiah seventeen nine says it's desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? So if you're not walking with Jesus, if He's not first, you better not trust your heart. Because your heart will want things that are antithetical to the will and the ways of God. And so, first of all, make sure Jesus is first. Then begin to consider, is he directing me through my desires? Giving me an interest in something I had never even thought about before? To get me to to follow him into some area in my life? Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said it like this. a provocative statement, but think about it. He said... Love God and do what you want. What was he saying? Love God and what you want to do will be the right thing to do because God will be giving you these godly desires to follow and pursue. Love God and do what you want. Sound good? All right. That was all parenthetical, that was not even your notes. I felt like I needed to say that, and it took a lot of time, but it was a good conversation. At least I enjoyed it. Okay, now, so trust, delight, third imperative, commit. Commit. Look in verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Now, this word commit is a really interesting word in the original language. It means to 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 roll and it speaks of having a burden and you and you roll it over onto someone else or something else i i, I had my, when i was a, a student pastor uh the, my pastor at the time was talking about this word and he used illustrations that always stuck with me he said when he was uh, a teenager he worked uh during the summers as A roofer. And he said his job was to get the materials up on the roof. And so he said he would get these stacks of of, um, shingles and he'd have them on his shoulder and he would labor up the ladder, you know. He said, get to the top. And it was, he couldn't, he was was so heavy. And he said he would get to the top where the roof and he would just, just roll it off his shoulder onto the roof. And he says, that's what this word is. There's a burden. There's something you don't understand, something you're having trouble uh, processing. Uh, life is hard sometimes. He's saying, don't, don't let that burden stay on your shoulder. Roll it off. And where do you commit it to? What's it say? Commit it to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. We're to roll our lives, roll our challenges, roll our hardships on to the Lord. Or let me say it like this we're to place our lives in God's hands. Nice guys finish last. Evil guys are flourishing. I don't get it, but guess what? My life is in God's hands. I just just roll it off into his hands and let him handle it. I'm not God, and I'm okay with that. That's what it means to commit, roll our lives onto the Lord. So just kind of quick Personal question tonight, no raising of hands or anything like that, but just a quick personal question. Is there something that that is a burden? Something kind of heavy that you are shouldering alone? Something that you're just kind of carrying and it's weighing you down. David says, commit it to the Lord roll it over on to him and you may have to even like say it out loud I mean not right now but get alone somewhere and just say Lord I'm I'm giving this to you I I I, I don't know how to carry it I'm giving it I need your help I'm I'm giving it to you and you know what Sometimes we do that. you hear a preacher preach, or you hear when you're you hear your Bible study teacher teach, and you think, "Oh, that's good, I need to give my burdens to the Lord and you do it, and then the next day you take it right back on your own shoulders. anybody ever ever done that right so so just imagine for a moment that your burdens are or a or a ball, right? And I say, I this ball's I don't want to hold this ball. So I'm gonna I'm gonna to toss it over here to Brad. And uh, oh, it feels good. I'm not holding that heavy ball anymore, and uh, things are great. But the next day, I walk over to Brad and say, give me that ball back. I'm gonna carry it around some more. That that's how a lot of Christians live their lives. They just keep taking burdens on themselves. And we just say, God, it's it. I can't. It's yours. I'm rolling it on to you. So you may have to say it several times a day. But David says, when you're living in perplexing situations, things you'll understand, commit your way to the Lord. Why? Trust in him. He will act. God's got it under control, which leads to the fourth imperative. How do we keep our focus on God? How do we look up? Trust, delight, commit, be still. Be still. Look in verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In other words, when you see nice guys finishing last and bad guys thriving, that's that's not under your purview. That's not for you to deal with or try to figure out or address. Let God handle it. He says, be still and wait patiently for him. Anybody here struggle with patience? This means to be still means we are to wait for the Lord to act. Listen to this quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes. The verb means be silent or be still. It describes, I like this phrase, calm, surrender to the Lord. And he writes, creative silence is a rare commodity today, even in church worship services. People cannot tolerate silence. And this quote is dated by his next statement. A silent radio or TV screen, we would say smartphone these days, invites listeners and viewers to switch to another station or channel. But unless we learn to wait silently before God, we will never experience his peace. Listen, for us to get upset because of the evil schemes of the ungodly, and there are lots of them, right? Somebody asked me one time, are you a conspiracy theorist? And I said, well, by that, do I believe there are evil people up to no good? Yes, I'm a conspiracy theorist that's what you mean, of course there's a bunch of shenanigans going on because we live in a fallen world, and there's a bunch of evil folks out there who, guess what, they find each other and and scheme against God and his people. So, yeah. Now, I'm not saying I'm ascribed to whatever conspiracy theory you're talking about. I'm just saying there's evil out there. But he says, for us to get upset because of the evil schemes of the ungodly is to doubt the goodness and justice of God. That's powerful, isn't it? And out of all these, trust, delight, commit, be still. I I would just wager that this would be the hardest for those in this room. To just be still, be silent, leave it in God's hands, quietly trust, calmly surrender, to the Lord. Christians should not be the ones running around, you know, anxious and and uh, upset all the time because we see things that are upsetting. We should have a calm trust in a sovereign God. We should learn to be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. So, What do you do when you see things that are perplexing? Look ahead, look up. Third and last, mind your own business. Mind your own business. That's really what this psalm is about. He spends a lot of time telling us how we ought to live in light of things we see happening around us that don't just quite seem fair. So look what it says in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So while you're waiting for God to take care of all of that, you do the right thing. You dwell in the land, live a, an honest life, be faithful. So instead of comparing, now this is important, instead of comparing and contrasting our circumstances with the wicked, we should focus on living a righteous life. Don't worry about all that. God will take care of all that. You just do the right thing. Live a righteous life. And in this psalm, we see a description of a righteous life. So we're going to look at several verses. I'm going to go real fast, okay? First of all, do good. What's it mean to be righteous? Do good. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Look in verse 27, turn away from evil and do good. So how would you define good? Talk to me for a minute. How would you define good? Yeah. What is good? God defines what's good and what's bad, right? Absolute truth. He's given us his word. So yes, do what God wants. Doing the things that God says are good and righteous and just and godly. Do good. Don't do things God says are bad. <laughs> Pretty simple, right? If you want a kind of a, a primer, just read the Ten Commandments. Pretty good place to start, right? In terms of what's good and what's bad, what's prohibited and what we should uh, be about. And so do good. Secondly, be faithful, verse 3, befriend faithfulness, befriend faithfulness. That phrase could be translated, feed on faithfulness, nourish yourself with faithfulness. So faithfulness speaks of, 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 of doing good over an extended period of time. Does that make sense? I mean, anybody can do good like, you know, one day do something good and feel good about themselves. But it takes faithfulness to keep on doing the good thing day after day after day after day so that people can—this is what faithful means—people can count on you that you're going to do good. So do good. Be faithful. Next, forsake anger. Verse 8, refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it it tends only to evil. When you get mad and upset about things, it's gonna make you act a fool, is what he's saying there. So don't be like that. Don't let anger rule your heart. Even when things um are are perplexing, even when things don't make sense, forsake anger, right? I mean, don't worry about the new boat that your neighbor has, right? That's that's not that's not that doesn't have anything to do with you. Forsake anger. You're all thinking right now. Did Wade's neighbor just get a new boat? I'm just. Uh. No, I love my neighbors. That that hasn't happened that that I know of. Next, be meek. Be meek. Look in verse eleven. But the meek, not the ones trying to be God, not the ones trying to take matters in their own hands, not the ones raging but the meek shall inherit the land, delight themselves in abundant peace. Jesus uh, alludes to this verse in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, uh, blessed are the meek in the Beatitudes, for they shall inherit the earth. It speaks of God's reward for those who, who lay down the prerogative of, of, of control, who cease trying to be God and trust in the Lord. Be meek be meek it doesn't mean you're weak it means you live with your with with a strength that's under control be meek not a not a bull in a china shop but a quiet trusting faithful christian be meek be generous verse 26 speaking of the lord He is ever lending generously, or speaking of the righteous, He is ever lending generously, and His children become a blessing. So the righteous person is described as someone who is generous. And so you can't control what other people are doing, but with with what you have, whatever it is, where you are, you can be generous with what you have. And here's what I've learned about generosity as being a recipient of much generosity throughout my life. You never forget it. When someone's generous just because, they just take an interest to you. I could tell you some very specific stories from years ago where someone was generous to me or generous to my family, and they didn't have to be. They just were just generous. You never forget it uh, because... You're never more like Jesus than when you're giving, amen? So when you're generous, people see Jesus in you. Be generous. I was reading a book today, and I thought it was a good practice. The book I was reading, he said that that um, his family has—he uh, was a pastor. He said his family actually has started putting generosity in the budget. So they have a line item in their family budget, and he says, not a lot of money. But he say we have a little, we have a little a little line item in our budget, and now, you know, me and my wife, our kids, we're when we're out and about, we're looking for some opportunities to be generous. Just, hey, we got a little bit of generosity money here, and we can, you know, be generous. So be generous. Live to leave a legacy. Live to leave a legacy. Say that five times fast. Look in verse 26. He, the righteous, is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. So his righteousness is passed on to his children. It says over in uh, Proverbs, I think it's 22-7 or 20-7, verse it says um, that the, the, the children of the righteous, or the one with integrity, are blessed. Uh, by the, the righteous or integrity of their father, because it's something they can they can emulate and follow and pass on to others. We ought to live to leave a legacy. In other words, we want to live in such a way that not only do we impact others around us in this life, but we impact those who are going to be around when we're no longer around. Steve Green uh, had a song years ago. um where he said, "Let all who come behind us find us faithful. may the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footsteps that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. It's a good, a good word. Is the life you're living inspiring those coming behind you to obey. Live to leave a legacy. Next, speak wisdom. How do you mind your own business? Speak wisdom. what it says in verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. Make sure that what you're saying is a, a wise word in due season. That's what Proverbs talks about. The right word at the right time. How many of you understand you can speak the right word at the wrong time? Raise your hand. So it takes wisdom to learn how to say the right thing at the right time in the right circumstance in the right situation but learn to speak wisdom that you're not just running off at the mouth upset about this mad about that perplexed but but when you speak you're speaking words that are solid and foundational and truthful and godly and wise speak wisdom there are people that i can name in my life And because they live this out, when they say something, it's like E.F. Hutton. Remember that? When they say something, I turn my ear to listen because they are so consistent at speaking wisdom. And then finally, be just. Be just. Look what it says in verse 30. The mouth of the righteous utters utters wisdom, his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart, his steps do not slip. So everyone around you may be doing the wrong thing and it looks like they're doing great and they're thriving. That does not give you license to do the wrong thing. Mind your own business and you do the right thing. Let the law of God be in your heart that your steps do not slip. I've talked to so many uh, church members through the years, a lot of folks that are you know, in 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 business or in sales, and and just just hearing how, you know, a, a salesman is working for a company, and and all the other salesmen are manipulating expense reports, cheating on expense reports, doing the wrong. Everybody knows they are, and then this Christian saying, "I'm just not going to do that." That's just it's not right it's not it doesn't have integrity I'm not going to do that. So you can't control what other people do, but in this world you can be just. You can do the right thing and trust that God sees that and God honors that and God rewards that. Even if it looks like those that are cheating are getting ahead, listen. Eventually, eventually it's going to it's going to bite them. When you live with no integrity. So so listen, how do you deal with it when nice guys finish last? Look ahead. Think about it from an eternal perspective. Look up. Get your focus upon the Lord. Put it all in His hands. And then mind your own business. Just you, as far as you're concerned, do the right thing. Live a godly life. Be generous. Be wise. And God will use your life to leave a wonderful, wonderful legacy.